All right, good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. And uh, amen to everything Pastor Chris said. And speaking of being eager, I know that the youth are probably eager to be dismissed from here. So uh, junior high and high school, there's youth group for you guys today. Pastor Chris, I think, is teaching uh, in the back, so you are welcome to head out. And then elementary kids as well, so that's like preschool through fifth grade. Just head over there, and I think... I'm not sure who's teaching you today, but there's Pastor Chris. I'll get you to the right place. Everybody else, uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, you might want to have a Bible. We have Bibles for you. Just raise your hands and one of the guys will bring one to you. Or you can certainly use a Bible on your phone um, or anything like that. We're going to be in the last uh, section of uh, Mark chapter 5. And uh, as Pastor Chris said, if you didn't see the Jesus Revolution movie, uh, I just highly want to encourage you to go see it for a couple of reasons. So it's getting great, great, great reviews, surprisingly great reviews from CinemaScore or whatever these people are that rate these things, but they gave it an A-plus rating, which apparently in all the time they've been rating these films, only 50 films have ever gotten that rating, uh, like Maverick and Titanic, and, you know, so to get an A-plus uh, is just uh, tremendous. Um, the other thing is we're in a little bit of competition this opening weekend to see if we can gross more than cocaine bear. So the hope is that more people will go see Jesus Revolution than go see cocaine bear. Not that there's anything wrong, that poor bear, I'm sure he was working through a lot of things. But go see Jesus Revolution this afternoon and then go see cocaine bear on streaming or whenever you need to see it if, if you need to see that. Um, so the Jesus Revolution movie, as Pastor Chris said, it, you know, it, it loosely sort of is based on uh, this, the beginnings of the, really the Calvary Chapel movement. I mean, Calvary Chapel as a church ex existed before that, but it really blew up and became this thing that, uh, that it had never intended to become simply because the Lord was doing a, an unprecedented, uh, surprising work. I think that this film does a, a masterful job really of um, just painting such a picture of the cultural landscape at the time that really led a whole generation of young people, um, you know, having found no answers kind of in the, in the hippie movement, they found the answers they were looking for, and that became the Jesus movement. And I think it does such a great job. So many parallels as you watch the movie, if you're not already a student of history, but as you watch the movie, you'll see that the questions that they were asking are really no different than the questions that people are still asking even today. And certainly we would all... Uh, say that we are ripe for another revival of this kind. Certainly, uh, we've been praying for this kind of thing. And so exciting, you know, with as we've talked about what happened there and the, the, you know, the outpouring of the Spirit there at Asbury and some of the other universities. Not coincidentally, I think, just in these last couple weeks and now with the release of this film. Just really exciting. This could be, uh, you know, in, in some ways, the beginnings of God answering these prayers um, so do continue to pray, do continue to, to go see the movie if you haven't already. That's my commercial, I'm glad you're here this morning. Let's pray and let's ask the Lord really to bless uh, our time as we ourselves go uh, to his word today. So Father, we do thank you so much. We thank you for all that we see you doing, Lord. We want to be a part of it. Lord, we thank you for the way that you are uh, beginning to answer these prayers, Lord, and just this heartfelt desire that we all have, Lord, for you to do again, Lord, in a different way, in a new and a fresh way, Lord, even in a better way, Lord, uh, to do again what you did during that Jesus revolution, uh, Lord, of the 70s, Lord, we want to see that same thing happen even now, Lord, and how our country desperately needs that. And so, Lord, we pray for that. We pray that you would use this film, Lord. We pray that you'd continue to pour out your spirit, Lord, and we pray that you'd pour out your spirit even now, Lord, on us here. Lord, as we go to your word, Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher. Lord, we pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, Lord, and that you'd give us ears to hear uh, what you want to say to each one of us, Lord, as your church individually, Lord, for this moment that we're here uh, even now today. And so we ask these things, Lord. We pray your blessing on this time in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 So Mark chapter 5, 
And we've been working our way through what I think is such an exciting section of the life and the ministry of Jesus. It's recorded for us here, again, in the Gospel of Mark. And we started back kind of in chapter 4 with something new, right? As Jesus started, remember, he started to teach the multitudes, right? We've got these crowds of people who were just a constant part of the everyday life now of Jesus. And they were always what we said, pressing in on him, and they were just trying to get close to him, and they just wanted desperately to hear from him. And as he started to address them, he started to teach them using these parables, and specifically what we call the kingdom parables, because they were these stories that really helped to illustrate these important spiritual principles about what the coming kingdom of God was really going to be like. And then we watched as Jesus and the disciples, remember they got caught in that terrible storm, right? That life-threatening storm there on the Sea of Galilee as they were attempting to cross over to the other side. And we watched in the midst of that storm as the Lord Jesus just revealed a bit more, actually he revealed quite a bit more, didn't he, of who he was to the, uh, to the disciples as he calmed the wind and he quieted the waves and he brought them safely across the sea, right? So that immediately, as we started off last week in chapter 5, you know, they could come face to face with this demoniac, right? This man who'd been demon-possessed, not just by one, but by a whole legion of evil spirits. And yet Jesus went to him, right? He sought him out specifically to set him free from the powers of evil. And that was last week. We saw when Jesus shows up on the other side. And it was such a powerful chapter, powerful passage, just an assurance to us as believers that the ability Jesus has, the absolute authority that he has over the demonic realm. Right, over these forces which so often can uh, even oppress us and hinder us in the things that God has for us. And now this morning, as we pick up, we're going to look at the next two events in Mark's account. They're two different events, but they're really interwoven for us by Mark because they occurred in a very beautiful and a very specific way. And they're two events that teach us a similar, similar lesson about Jesus' ability just to deal with those circumstances that come into our lives, which can so completely overwhelm us. You know, the kind of situations that are bigger than our lives, right? That may even threaten our lives, right? So the, the title of the message today is When Life Gets Too Big, We Need to Go to Jesus, right? So pick up with me in Mark chapter 5. And we're going to pick up in verse 21 of chapter 5, where we read that now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. So now we've gone back to the other, other side, right? So back to the west side of the Galilee, most likely back, although we're not told specifically, but most likely back to that city of Capernaum, right there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, this had kind of become the headquarters of Jesus' ministry up here in the Galilee region. And as is always the case with Jesus now at this point in his ministry, we see that there's a great multitude that gathered to him. And you can just kind of picture this in your minds, right? Here he's just coming off the boat with his disciples, probably hardly even to take two steps onto the land, and immediately he's surrounded by this crowd. And we think about it, what a study in contrasts, because we remember when we left off last time that the crowd on the other side, right, the crowd on the, the, the Gadara side or the Decapolis side, they had just chosen pigs over Jesus and begged Jesus to leave. Remember it says that they began to plead with him to depart from their region. So the east side kind of sighed with relief when Jesus left, but the west side crowd, here they are, they are set to receive just as soon as Jesus shows up. And I think this is really kind of indicative of a, an important spiritual principle for us, of course, 
and that is that the West Coast is the best coast. I think that, okay, it doesn't actually teach that at all. Just an interesting observation. I'm going to leave that with you guys. Remember, the popularity of Jesus at this point is just off the charts, right? So very high, at least among the common people. Now, the religious establishment, remember that they simply saw him, they saw him as a threat. He was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their positions. They even believed he was a threat to their religion. And remember, we've already seen them back in chapter 3. They have declared that they are plotting now about how they might destroy Jesus. Remember it said that the Pharisees went out immediately, plotted with the Herodians. This was kind of a political group at the time. But they plotted about how they might destroy him. And of course, why wouldn't they plot? I mean, after all, Jesus had just healed a man on the Sabbath, right? So why wouldn't they, of course, plan to destroy him after that? But the common people, right? All they had to do was to see his boat coming back across. Word gets out, Jesus is on the way. And before he even gets to the shore, there's this multitude right there at the shoreline. Now, as we've said before, crowds are crowds, right? Multitudes are multitudes, but every multitude is made up of individual people. And so the Holy Spirit now through Mark is going to give us some real insight into two people who made up the part of the multitude that day that came there surrounding Jesus. And these were two people, as we're going to see, for whom life had certainly gotten way too big. And the first one of those people we see here starting in verse 22, where Mark says, and behold, now behold, right? That's a surprise word, right? Unexpected word. It's a, an attention kind of word, and we're going to see why. He says, behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. So out of the multitude emerges this man, Jairus. And Mark tells us that he's one of the rulers, probably of that local synagogue. He would have been the man whose responsibility it was just to make sure everything was running smoothly in the synagogue. In our terms, we probably wouldn't call him a ruler, but maybe an overseer. He's probably kind of a blending of a pastor and a, and a deacon. And this was a very well-respected position within the community. This man, Jairus, would have been known by everyone there in the community. Now, he also would have been very much a part of this religious establishment. And so as he pushes through here to the front of the crowd, right, to, to kind of meet Jesus right there on the shore, it may well have looked like there was trouble Right on the horizon for Jesus, and yet we see something very surprising at the end of that verse. Again, behold, it says at the end of verse 22, and when he saw him, it says he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live." So he comes not to challenge Jesus, but to fall down in front of Jesus, right? To fall down at his feet and to begin to beg for the life of his sick child. Now notice in verse 23, Mark tells us, even in Mark's economy of words, he tells us that this man didn't just beg Jesus, but he begged him earnestly. Right, so this means that this begging was filled with this great sense of emotion. Some of your translations may say that he was pleading fervently with him or that he pleaded with him urgently or he begged anxiously of Jesus. So the point is that this is a dramatic and a very emotion-filled scene if there ever was one. Now again, we've said it before, but I don't know when the last time you saw a man beg but it's a pretty rare thing, right? It's a pretty rare occurrence in life. It takes a really big thing to drive a man, really to drive anyone to that place where they will beg for something from someone else and especially to publicly beg something of someone. A person needs to be in a desperate place to do that. 
And of course, we see that Jarius has every good reason to be just this desperate because his young daughter, who we're going to learn at the end of the text, is just 12 years old. She's lying there sick at home. Not only is she sick, she's at death's door. She is just a blink away from dying. And I think that certainly any parent in this room any of us even who aren't parents, you know, we can recognize that this is one of the great nightmares that can enter into any parent's life, really any person's life. And just to drive them to this kind of a desperate place, it's really a place where every other resource in life has failed. And we end up as a result, we end up at the feet of Jesus pleading with him for what we know that only he can do. So again, when life gets too big, we are driven to this point of desperation. And I think that on some level, certainly we have to admire, at least we have to recognize the faith that this man had, right? It probably wasn't a pure faith. It wasn't a developed faith. It wasn't a well-informed faith. And yet Jairus knew enough to know that Jesus could heal. And his faith had feet because he was willing to risk everything to come to Jesus. He was willing to risk his position, his reputation as one of the most important and most recognized, one of the most respected people in the city, certainly amongst the Jews, but even among Gentiles. And this is an important point, and it's, it's interesting, it's very significant. You know, the Holy Spirit could have simply said here in this passage, writing through Mark, he could have just written that there was a man who came to Jesus for healing for his dying daughter. And we would absolutely have understood the need. And yet the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. It is very important to the Holy Spirit that we know that this guy was a ruler of the synagogue. Because I don't really think there's any way to fully appreciate what's happening here in this scene apart from knowing what his position really was there in the community. Again, to be the ruler of a synagogue, it was a position that would have translated into a very, very enviable kind of a quality of life. He would have possessed considerable power as a result and considerable influence as a result. It was a position that if it wouldn't have made him wealthy, it would have at least made him very, very comfortable financially. It was a position that would have been absolutely secure. I mean, he effectively would have had to die before his position would have passed on to someone else. And yet here, to come here to Jesus at this point would have been to put all of that in jeopardy. It couldn't have been easy for him to come to Jesus and to beg for help and especially not to do it in this kind of a public way. This was not a good move for job security. Right? He is putting everything he's worked for in life, all of it on the line to come to Jesus with this need. That is a desperate man. So he lays aside his pride and his dignity, his entire career, his reputation in order to do this. And this is why I think that this man Jairus should be of such great, great interest to all of us. All of us in this room, really to all of us in the world because every single one of us in this life is a Jairus. Because sooner or later, we will find ourselves right here in his shoes. Sooner or later, every single one of us in this world, every single one of us in this room, we are going to hit some kind of a situation in life, some sort of a trial in life, some kind of a difficulty in our lives that will just outstrip all of our personal resources. And I don't care how considerable those resources are for you. There will be a time when some situation comes that will just laugh at your power and it will laugh at your money and it will laugh at your security and it will not care at all about your reputation. It won't honor any of those things in any way, shape or form, no matter how much you have of all of those kinds of things. 
but it will outstrip all of our financial resources and our emotional resources, our mental resources, our material resources, all of the privileges that are ours because of our position in life or whatever doors have been opened to us in life, it will outstrip all of that and everyone will eventually face this. Everyone will be in Jaria's shoes sooner or later, if not in this life, then as you approach the end of this life, as you approach death, right? No one will escape this. And so as with Jairus, so often it's at a time like this when a person finally does come to Jesus. Even though they may have already previously known all about Jesus. I don't think there can be any doubt that as the ruler of the synagogue, that Jairus knew all about Jesus. He'd probably been hearing about Jesus for a long, long time. Remember, at this point, he's probably been hearing about Jesus for two, maybe even two and a half years, right? Jesus' fame has been out there for the religious establishment to become aware of. Certainly, they were well aware at this point, as we've seen, that there was a new dynamic on the spiritual scene there in Israel. There were things happening in Israel that hadn't been happening for 400 years in the history of the Jews. So Jairus, without a doubt, had known all about Jesus, probably knew a lot about Jesus for a very long time, and yet without any crisis, right, without any obvious need or without any kind of extremity in his life, he just simply goes on with his life, just ignoring Jesus, at least until, right, there is always an until moment in every human life. And there is a certain kind of person who would not come to the Lord apart from some kind of a desperate circumstance that developed in their life. And I know that because I was one of those people. Everything was good, right? Everything was too good until it wasn't. And suddenly, I needed something. I needed someone who was bigger. I needed someone who was bigger than me. I needed someone certainly who was bigger than my problem and someone who was bigger than my desperation. Now, for you, you may be much more like Jairus than I was. You know, you may be in a point where you're doing everything right. Your life is so moral and your life is so upright that without some kind of a disturbance, you would never ever have seen your need for God. And looking around at a room this size, I have to wonder how many of us in this room, and for God's sakes, don't shout it out, right? <laughs> but how many of us in this room have come to Jesus just in this same path of Jairus, right? Some crisis that was needed to get our attention just to bring us to him, or we would have never, ever even looked in his direction. God knows how many of us, right? And maybe there's even one or two of you here this morning that haven't gotten to that point yet. And maybe just like Jairus, you've heard of Jesus, right? You've heard of him all your life, and yet now there's some sort of extremity that's, that's coming to bear in your life that is pushing you to seek him personally, and that's even why you showed up today. Let me encourage you with one of the lessons that this passage has for us. Don't ever be hesitant to come to Jesus. And I say that because sometimes a person can feel like, well, you know, I, I, I kind of feel bad coming to God. I feel bad turning to Jesus because it took this terrible circumstance in my life to get me to this point, you know, this, this tragedy. I didn't want it to be this way. I didn't want to come to him this way. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to try to ride out this circumstance and get myself back together. And then when I'm not so desperate, then I'll come to him. Don't do it. Don't do that in your life. You come to him right now. You come to him the moment, the first moment that you know that you need to come to him. The Lord loves you. The Lord loves Jairus. And he knew all about his history. 
He knew that Jairus was coming to him in the same way he knows all about your history and he still loves you. And so often it's that history that he'll use. He'll allow these things to come into our life just to jar us. Right, to shock us into the realization that there are these bigger issues that can come into our lives that are too big for us, and we need Jesus to help us through that. And I, I want you to notice this. Notice that Jairus was already a very, very religious man. Right? And I say that to say this, that religious men and religious women, they need to come to Jesus too. Right? They need to be saved as well. And here in America, we live in what is still a pretty religious nation. And this might be applicable in, in other parts of our country, more so than here. But you still see so many people in our country who are just trusting in their religion. They're trusting in this good thing that they're a part of or these good things that they're doing. And they're looked at by everyone around them as a moral person and they have this high moral standard in their life. But they've lived apart from Jesus, right? There's no personal faith in Jesus because they've never truly been born again. I will tell you, I was raised in a Christian home. I would never have ever said I didn't believe in Jesus. I just didn't personally know Jesus. And I didn't even personally know that I didn't know Jesus or that I needed to know Jesus. I just thought it was extra for those weird people, right? Until I was 30. Until I was in crisis because of the mess that I had made of my life this irreparable damage that I had done to my life, even though I had grown up religious. So remember, remember that it was to this off-the-charts kind of a righteous religious person by the name of what? Nicodemus. It was to this religious man that Jesus said this. He said, most assuredly, I say to you. And when Jesus says that, it means listen up, right? Don't miss this. This is important. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, look, I don't care what kind of a person we're talking about here, religious person, not religious, whatever it is, unless a person is born again, because that's how we enter into this new family. That's how we enter into this new relationship with God. And if you sit here this morning and you have come out of some kind of a religious system, or maybe you're even currently in one, there may be somebody listening or somebody here, you may even be a gyrus. You might be an elder or a deacon, or maybe you're a person that holds some high position in some sort of a religious system, and you will lose all of that if you come to know Christ and be born again and follow after him. Do it anyway. Do it still in your life. I think about how many people have to come out of Mormonism or come out of Jehovah's Witness or come out even of Roman Catholicism. They have to come out of those things to truly be saved and to enter into that one-on-one -on -one personal kind of a relationship with Jesus as opposed to this relationship that they have with this system. And they come out of these things so often against the wishes of their families, right? These generations after generations of these families that have been involved in these systems, and yet we are talking about life and death here, right? We're talking about eternity here, and there is an eternal difference between your religion and a real relationship with the living Jesus Christ, and sometimes it is only in this desperation. It's only in this intensity of desperation that it drives us just like it drives Jairus, that's what it took in his life. It took him getting to this place to realize, you know, I have all of these other things, but I don't have the answer for this condition of my daughter. I don't have a hope or a confidence related to what's going to happen to her if she dies. I don't have an answer for death. I don't have the hope of heaven. 
I don't have it for her and I don't have it for myself either. And so it drives him to Jesus, begging and pleading for help. He says, just come with me, just touch her. I know that she'll live. And look what we see next, wonder of wonders. It says in verse 24, so Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Now, Jesus could have said, right? Maybe Jesus should have had. I, I think if I were Jesus, I would have said, hey, weren't you one of the guys plotting to kill me? <laughs> but he didn't say that. He didn't say any of those things, and he won't say those things to you either. And you just think about the relief. Think about what must have happened in Jairus' heart at this moment. You think about the hope now that he has for this 12-year-old girl, the love that he has for her. And there is hope now because Jesus is on the way and he knows that everything is going to be okay. And you just imagine what was happening inside of him when all of a sudden, the next verse, there's this interruption that's going to come to this perfect plan right out of the crowd. Look at verse 25. It says, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If, I only, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. So suddenly out of nowhere... Right, Literally from the back, right there comes this woman who also needs to be touched and to be healed by Jesus. But her issue was a chronic issue, a 12-year kind of a chronic issue. Some sort, Mark tells us, of a flow of blood, which most likely was probably like a chronic menstrual flow. And it was a very significant one at that. If you look down just a couple verses in verse 29, it's described as a fountain of blood, which simply helps give us a sense for the significance of just this constant loss of blood from her body. And so we think just simply from a medical standpoint, the kind of impact that this would have on you physically just in, I'm no doctor, right? But just in terms of the anemia that this would cause and the weakness that this would produce, I think it's a wonder that she could even make it through the crowd to get to Jesus because she must have been so weak physically. And, but then even just beyond physically, you consider the consequences of something like this socially. Because a chronic condition like this According to the law of Moses, that kind of flow would have made her ceremonially unclean. It would have made anyone who touched her also ceremonially unclean. And so she's been leading this life of social isolation, probably total physical isolation from the touch of any family or friends. It would have barred her from ever attending the synagogue, let alone going to the temple. So understandably, what we learn is in verse 26 that she had been, for 12 years, doctor after doctor after specialist after specialist, right? Many physicians she had seen with no cure. For 12 years, she has sought out every human means for the healing of her body. Now, if you have ever dealt with a chronic kind of a health issue, you know just the emotional roller coaster that's involved in each and every visit to the doctor. So you can imagine how this woman had gone from one physician to another and then to another just with the hope, you know, maybe it's this one who's going to be able to help me. Maybe it's the next one who's going to be able to help me. And yet no one can help her. And not only could they not help her, but the end of verse 26 says that the, at the end result of those 12 years, not only is she not any better, but she's worse, right? Not only is there the physical side and the social side and the spiritual side and the mental side and the emotional side, but now there's also the material side, right? There's the financial side. She is broke. She doesn't have any money left 
to go to any doctor to even seek out what the next cure. She may even be in a more compromised condition physically from any one of these attempted cures. Right, so this condition has put her in the poorhouse and it's put her outside of the medical community as having any kind of solution. So her entire life has just been reduced to this chronic thing that's happening to her. And she is emotionally and she is mentally and she is financially wiped out. And so I think that this woman is important because I think that in her suffering, we see another dynamic completely to her desperation, even than we saw in Jairus. And it's a dynamic that I know many of you know all too well, and it is time. Time, because not only are we driven to desperation, but then we're stuck just languishing there in our desperation. To have this same sort of desperation that Jairus felt, but to have it for 12 long years. So as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive, this woman has been suffering. Right? And if you are suffering through a chronic illness or a chronic relationship or a chronic circumstance or a chronic consequence in your life and to suffer for 12 long years or for 20 long years or even more, that's the kind of thing that can bring us to this place of utter desperation and even to despair. Where hope is gone that we will ever feel normal again that will ever feel normal physically or normal socially or normal emotionally, that is, until we hear about Jesus. Because look back, I love the beginning of verse 27. It says, when she heard about Jesus. So you imagine all of this 12 years of suffering, but when she heard about Jesus, hope was reborn in this woman as she heard about what he had done for other people or how he had healed other people. And it was that hope that then energized her drained body and strengthened her depleted spirit and it gave her this faith in him and this confidence that if she could simply get to him and touch him, she knew she could be whole again. And so all of this is just going on somewhere inside of her, all of these emotions and these thoughts and all of her history and this desperation. And she makes her way there through the crowd, this massive crowd to approach Jesus. Again, the end of verse 28, because she knew if I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Verse 29, and immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. I love that word immediately, amen? She knew immediately the thing I've been feeling in my body for 12 years, that is over now. She knew it. She could feel it. Imagine what happens inside of a person at a moment like that. I mean, her emotions and her mind and her heart must have just been soaring, just coming into contact with him, right? Just coming up behind him and reaching out and just touching his clothes, right? And now all she needs to do is quietly sneak away as quietly as she had snuck up there, right? And get back to her life. But we're going to see next, Jesus isn't going to let her do that because he loves her way too much. Look at verse 30, it says, and Jesus immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Now this is such a wonderful snapshot, I think, because even here for just this moment in time, think about it, there were only two people in that multitude of people that knew that something had just happened. Because Jesus knew that that dynamic dunamis power had gone out of him. Right? He knew that the healing power of the Holy Spirit had just flown through him and she knew that she had just received that power as it flowed into her. They were the only two, and yet all of a sudden, Jesus suddenly stops this great crowd of people. Think about it. This whole multitude of moving people just simply stops on a dime. 
And Jesus asks this question that we have to believe he already knew the answer to. He says, who touched my clothes? And what we're going to see next is it creates just a bit of confusion. It says in verse 31, but his disciples said to him, well, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? They say, like, Jesus, look around. You are surrounded by this huge crowd. There are people all around you, and they're bumping into you, and they're pressing in upon you, and you're asking, who touched my clothes? Right? Are you serious right now with us, Jesus? <laughs> he says in verse 32, it says, and he looked around to see her who had done this thing. And I read that, and I just get the sense of all of a sudden this stillness right, of that stopped crowd as he looks and his eyes just settle right onto this woman. And I would think that without a doubt, their eyes must have locked with each other. And it says in verse 33, but the woman, fearing and trembling and knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Understand, Jesus stopped and he identified this woman out of the crowd, not to embarrass her, but to bless her. And to bless her in a very special way. And to recognize this real, authentic, genuine faith that he saw in her. Notice he called her daughter. And I say notice it because Jesus never ever calls any other person by this name anywhere in any of the gospel accounts. And just imagine hearing that, how her heart would have just overflowed. I don't know who has called her daughter or used a term of affection with this woman for 12 years. All she's been for 12 years is a disease. All she's been for 12 years is this person that makes other people ceremonially unclean. So I don't think that anyone has probably used a term of affection for her in a very long time. And Jesus knew how much she needed to hear that. It's such a beautiful word and a relational sense. But I think it's a word also that is pregnant with significance in a spiritual sense. Because at this moment, I believe that Jesus knew what nobody else there could know. And that is that this great event in her life had not only resulted in her healing physically, but that it had produced this faith in her concerning who he really was that now made her part of God's family spiritually. So she was now a daughter in the truest sense of the word. She not only had received this physical healing, but now she had this lasting spiritual peace that had come out of her desperation. And I think that this woman with the issue of blood has such a very important lesson for us as Christians because it teaches us about the importance in our relationship with Jesus, not simply of faith, but of a desperate faith of a can-I-just-reach-out-and-touch-the-hem-of-his-garment kind of faith. Because it's very easy after a, a bit of time walking with the Lord where we stop coming to him in this desperate kind of way, the way that we did at the beginning. And sometimes we say, well, it's just Christian maturity. It's actually nothing of the sort, Right? Remember back when you were a brand new Christian, you remember that, I mean, all we knew about Jesus was whatever we had read in the Bible about him that morning, right before we rushed out and we had to go do life again. And whatever it was we had read that morning, I mean, we expected him to do that and to be that in our lives for that day. We expected him to speak and to move and to heal and to do and for us to be able to recognize that his fingerprints were now all over our lives. And we really believed him for all of these things. And then what happens? 
right? A horrible thing happens is that over time, as we walk with the Lord for a while, we kind of just join this big religious crowd that's just following Jesus all around. And we learn with the rest of the crowd to just kind of jostle Jesus, right? To bump up against him once in a while. But somebody just sort of jostling Jesus as a part of a crowd and somebody who is touching him and reaching out to him in this kind of a desperate faith, those are two entirely different things entirely. And Jesus knows the difference. Jesus can feel the difference. Here's this multitude that is jostling him and moving him and rubbing and shoving and pushing and all of these other things, right? And suddenly he stops in the middle of all of this and he says, somebody touched me. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, I am used to being jostled and bumped and thronged by these great religious crowds, but something different just happened. This is different and she is different. Right, because this is rarer than you can know, is how few people there are, even in a religious crowd, Jesus says, how few people there are who really reach out to me with a true faith and a sincere faith and a desperate faith about anything. And Jesus says, I recognize that when it happens. And for those of us who've walked with the Lord for a little while, let me ask you a question. When is the last time you really grabbed a hold of him with your faith in this kind of a way about anything. And yet we can think that we're walking by faith when we're not. And so I think that this part of the passage is such a beautiful wake-up call to not just head into church with the crowd. Don't just head, you know, out to the midweek study with the crowd. Don't just go to be around Jesus and to be around the things of Jesus and then think, oh, I'm walking by faith. When you know it can be days and weeks and months and years since I have actually believed in him for something big in my life. And so often it takes us getting to that point of desperation just to snap us out of that condition. And it's so important, not just in those early days of our Christian life, but all the way through our Christian walk, that we really honor him with this kind of deep faith. And when we bring these kinds of things to him with this kind of faith and with a, a desperateness and a confidence that his power can still flow freely right into our lives. And I think just what a, what, how beautiful is just the power of this passage and the encouragement of this passage to our faith and just this need that we have a renewed sense of some desperation in our walk with him. I love this woman and what her faith speaks to us through her life into our life. And now speaking of faith, right, we've got poor Jairus. And whatever faith that we had said that he had, it was now being stretched right by the minute, literally. Right? Jesus had stopped now and he's had the, having this kind of an extended interaction with this woman. It probably took less time than it did for me to talk about it. But still, it took time. Right? This was a delay in what Jairus, this critical crisis that he was in. And now we're going to see that that faith that Jairus had, it was about to be tested in the way that he feared the most. Because now the narrative turns back to him. Look at verse 35. It says that while he was still speaking, so while Jesus was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? You know, there are, there are times in our lives when our desperation or our situation simply goes from bad to worse, right? Where we have been hanging on by this thread of faith that we have and we have sought the Lord and we have come to Jesus now in this desperation but things don't get any better and in fact they just get worse. And now we're at a point where our circumstance is even beyond what Jesus can fix. Or at least that's what we think. But this is the point where Jairus was, right? Why even trouble the teacher any further? But look how Jesus responds to this. Verse 36, it says, As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, 
He said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. So Jesus heard the report, right, and the recommendation from Jairus' friends in verse 35, but then Jesus adds his own remedy right here in verse 36, and he speaks right to the broken heart of this father. Before anyone could say anything else, Jesus simply says, do not be afraid, only believe. Right? He just answers this emotion that the father was feeling, right? So when life gets too big and we're driven to desperation or we're stuck in desperation or when our desperation goes from bad to being even worse, Jesus says, do not be afraid, only believe. And more literally, in another translation, what Jesus actually says is, do not be afraid, just trust Do not be afraid, only believe. So however you prefer to translate it, here's what's interesting, is that it is written in the present tense in the Greek. And what the present tense in the Greek speaks of, it doesn't just speak of something happening now, but it speaks about something happening continually. So what Jesus is saying is more like, keep on not being afraid. And instead, he says, keep on trusting in me. What Jesus says is, hey, you know that way that you were feeling about two minutes before this report came in, right? He says, don't stop feeling that way. Don't stop feeling as hopeful as you were when we were headed to see her before this woman came in. He says, don't stop feeling that day. He says, do stop being afraid and just keep on believing. He says, only believe. And I love that word only, so I want you to circle that one. And then I also love the word believe, and I want you to circle that one too. Because I think that here is yet another one of these great lessons for the passage. I mean, maybe you are here today and you're in this place even this morning where you are just completely overwhelmed and completely overdone because you've had this terrible news that's come into your life and all of a sudden whatever faith you had is gone and now there's just this fear that's gripping your heart. And I love only believe because when a person gets into that kind of a place, they can probably really only concentrate on about one thing. And that is not the time to sit down with that person who's just received this kind of completely devastating news and say, okay, get out some paper because I'm gonna give you a list of 25 super helpful things that a person in your condition needs to really be aware of. Right? Because they simply can't even process five things at that moment, let alone 25 things. What they can hold on to is probably one thing. And that's what Jesus just gave Jairus here. He says, you just need to hold on to this one thing right now, Jairus, and that's to keep believing in me. Keep trusting in me. Just keep having faith in me. Faith, the Bible says, is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Right? Faith is believing something to be true simply because God said that it's true in spite of what everyone else says must be true. And sometimes I'll be talking with someone in the wake of this kind of devastating news that's come into their life, whether it's a diagnosis of a health issue or maybe it's the prognosis of the reality of another issue that's coming to bear in their life. And they'll get this report and according to the experts, you know, it's, it's turned into this thing or, or this is what the experts say, you know, this is now what you can expect in your life right now. And that's the time that I will usually pray something like this with them. I'll say, you know, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for these medical professionals or we thank you for these experts, you know, whatever the, the, the field is. And we thank you for their expertise and we thank you for their care and for their concern. But Lord, they have brought us some difficult news here. And what we want to know is what do you have to say in this situation? Because, Lord, we are being overwhelmed by all of these voices, and we need to know how do you see this from your throne in heaven. And we need, Lord, to hear that from you. And then I'll usually pray for them, you know, Lord, would you just bring them a verse? 
bring it to their remembrance, or Lord, just bring them a lyric from a hymn or from a, a worship song. Bring them something that infuses your perspective into this situation, Lord. We have heard from everybody else, but now we need to hear from you. And that should always be our prayer because once we've heard from God and once we have his assessment on how he sees it, now we can be at rest. And that's exactly what Jesus provides here for Jairus. He comes in and he just speaks to him and he says, only believe, just trust in me. And so they, they continue on. They leave the multitude. Look what it says in verse 37. It says, and he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Now, people often will point out to here that these three are Jesus' inner circle, right? Peter, James, John. These are his special guys. And that's probably true. But I also think we could consider maybe these were the guys that he knew he needed to keep a little bit closer eye on, right? He didn't want to leave those guys outside. I just want you guys to think about that. It's a discussion maybe for a different day. Teachers, what do you do with the problem kid in the class? You make him your helper, right? Okay, verse 38. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and he saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now understand what's happening here, right? Jesus arrives there at the house and these people are lamenting loudly and they're crying out and they're weeping and they're wailing here at the house because in those days, when you would have a death of a loved one, you would hire these professional mourners. It was just the custom of the Jews. It was expected that even for the poorest man in the town, for example, if his wife died, the expectation was that he would hire a minimum of two flute players and one verbal mourner. So here's Jairus with his position as the ruler of the synagogue. He would have been expected to have many, many more flute players, right? All of these different mourners. And so imagine we've got this huge crowd. And the idea behind the mourners is that they would mourn publicly to allow the family to grieve privately. Right? We want to let the professionals communicate the grief we're experiencing to the community. Right? We, they want to communicate that a death has occurred. And this is how the family is feeling about that. And so Jesus comes in and he sees all of this. And he tells them that all of your commotion is completely unnecessary because the child isn't dead at all, but she's just sleeping. Right? This is not the end of the story, Jesus says. Because when Jesus, from his perspective, looks at death Jesus looks at death as something that you can easily arise from just like we arise from sleep look what it says at the beginning of verse 40 it says and they ridiculed him I mean these were the paid professionals right these people literally did death for a living if anyone knew when someone was dead it was these people and the truth is she was dead she was dead from the physical perspective. She was dead from their perspective. She just wasn't dead from Jesus' perspective. So they mock Jesus, and look what Jesus does with them. It says that they ridiculed him, but when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Now, I think quickly... This verse is an important one, and I think it's an instructive one because it shows us that Jesus proceeded to remove all of these people along with their unbelief. He simply removed them from the situation, not for his sake, but he did it for the sake of Jairus and his wife and for the sake of the faith that they had. And I bring this up quickly, even though we don't have time. I bring it up to give you the freedom never ever to feel guilty about putting mockers and scorners out of your life at times like this. 
Right? Anyone at a time like this who would rise up in the middle of a crisis like this and would mock and would scorn the promises of God or the word of God or your faith in God, do not be afraid to simply remove them from your life if just for a season. Right? Because most of the time in our lives we can handle their mocking and we can handle their scorning, but there are those times in our life when they become a danger to us. Right? There are times when we need to be thinking about other things and be focused on other things like the promises that God has given us. So don't be afraid to put those people at a bit of a distance and instead to surround yourself with people who know God and who love God and who know you and who love you and will pray for you and be an encouragement to your faith. Now look at our last couple verses. What do you think is about to happen here? You probably read ahead. It says in verse 41 that then he took the little child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. Literally what it says in the Greek is that they were out of their minds with great amazement. Right? Minds blown with great amazement. And I guess so. I mean, Jesus had just raised this girl from the dead. Dr. Luke puts it like this. He said that her spirit returned and she arose immediately. So the word of Jesus, right, the power of Jesus had just brought victory over this death in a little girl just as it had brought victory over this disease in this woman, just as it had brought victory over the demons that had possessed that man at Gadara, just as it had brought victory over the danger of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. You talk about a faith-filled few days in the life of the disciples. Now, I need to say what you already know because I want you to know something more. All of these different passages do not teach us that Jesus will always do what he did here. The things he did in all of these other passages, right? But what they reveal to us is that he can do it when it is his will to do it. And so when he doesn't heal, right, when he doesn't stop the storm, when he doesn't free us immediately from our affliction, we still are able to rest in the fact that it's not because he doesn't have the power to do it, but it's because he knows that somehow it wouldn't be best. When he doesn't do it, it's because he knows that somehow it would be a violation of his perfect wisdom and his perfect love and his highest for that person. And to understand this, it's not trying to explain away his power or to explain away his faith, but it's simply to understand that things are always more complicated than simply how we look at things. God is there. He's there to rest in during these desperate times in our lives. But we rest not only in his great power, but we need to also be able to rest in his great wisdom as it relates to our lives. And we also need to be able to rest in his great love that he wants to pour into our lives. You know, so, so what's his word to us when he doesn't heal? What's his word to us when he doesn't calm the storm? When he doesn't deliver us? Well, it's the same. It's the very same that we saw up in verse 36. Look back there. He said what? Do not be afraid, only believe. Now you don't need to circle anything because hopefully you already did circle it, right? He says, do not be afraid, only believe, but don't just believe in my power. He says, believe in my wisdom. Believe in my love also in this situation. Verse 40 says, he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, again, simply so that he could make an exit. And he said that something should be given her to eat. Right? That's a message to the parents. She's no longer sick anymore. Everything's working in the way that it's supposed to. She needs to just return back to her normal life. Right? 
Do not be afraid, only believe. You can trust in him in your situation. You can trust in his power, you can trust in his wisdom, and you can trust in his love. So where do we go when life overwhelms all of our natural resources? We go to Jesus and we go in our absolute desperation. Right? So this, this passage, both of these stories are all about the importance of that desperate faith and how we can never outgrow that in our lives. True maturity as a Christian is marked by the strong, believing faith in Jesus where we're doing more than just thronging him or just jostling him with this religious crowd, but we're exercising that personal faith in him and we're learning to really rest and to rest in his power and in his wisdom and in his love and to, to let that be what carries us right through those most desperate moments in our lives. Amen? Those moments when life really does get too big. Amen? Amen. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you so much for your word, Lord, and we thank you for the hope that it communicates to us, Lord, and the assurance of your presence there with us, Lord, that we can just trust in you and rest in you, Lord, in who you are and in how much you love us. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to do that now, Lord. If there are those who are here this morning who don't already know you, Lord, we pray that you would stir their hearts, Lord, and bring them to that place, Lord, out of this desperation that they would be brought to this place where they would want to know you, Lord, and enter into this personal relationship with you. If that's you this morning, there are going to be people up front that you can come forward, you can have prayer with, even as we start to worship now, Lord. And for the rest of us, I, I pray, Lord, for those of us who already do know you, that you would help a passage like this, Lord, to simply deepen our faith, Lord, and to keep us in that place of desperation, Lord, each and every day of our lives. Lord, and so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, and we do it in Jesus' powerful and wonderful name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's worship the Lord.